Good evening, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 19. Tonight, we are going to be looking at John's account of Jesus' crucifixion. And in this, we're going to see the Savior of the world be hung upon the cursed tree, becoming a curse for us so that we might have and experience life forever in Christ. And strangely, this and everything that we've read thus far this evening and those things that we've sung thus far this evening make me think of goofy AT&T commercials. There are some commercials that are out right now that maybe you've seen or maybe you've heard of. They are the just okay is not okay commercials from AT&T and I love them. I think they're awesome. And there are a couple in particular that I really enjoy. One is of a man getting his very first tattoo. And this man is clearly nervous. And so the tattoo artist recognizes the man's apprehension. And he looks up and smiling, he seeks to reassure this man. And he says, don't worry, amigo. This is gonna look okay. (laughs) And so this clearly doesn't have the effect on the man that the tattoo artist thought it would. He's still nervous, and so the man just says, just okay. And again, the the tattoo artist wants to reassure him. He wants to really drive it home, so he says, don't worry. I am one of the tattoo artists in this town. (laughs) Another one of these commercials has a man in a hospital bed, and his entire family is surrounding him. He's about to have surgery. And this nurse is working on some paperwork and she's standing near this family and they seeking to be reassured said, oh, do you know the the surgeon who's gonna be performing the surgery? And she goes, oh yes, I know him, he's okay. And so them too, they say, just okay. And about that time, the surgeon walks in and he's clearly happy because as he tells us, he was just reinstated to his role. And he comes in and he says, how are you feeling? Nervous? And they say, yes. And he says, yeah, me too. (laughs) Don't worry, we'll figure it out. And he heads out. I enjoy these commercials because I think they capture something of the angst that we all feel. It's that feeling that this thing is important. This surgery is important. This tattoo is important. And I hope that it works out. I hope that everything is okay in the end. These commercials, they they make me think of my own life. They make me think in particular of when I try to hang things in my home. When I try to hang pictures or shelves or clocks. There has never been a time in my entire life where I have felt confident as I have hung something on the wall. Not a single time in my life. I can remember vividly before Henry was born, hanging a shelf in his nursery and being so excited about it, only to go into the other room and a couple hours later hearing a disastrous crash 
going in, seeing if this shelf had fell, that sort of thing does not give you confidence moving forward and hanging things on the wall. But I don't feel confident. I've never taken a class on hanging things on the wall. I've never studied how much weight a nail can hold. I don't know that information. I've never had an expert come along and say, this is how you hang a shelf or this is how you hang a clock. And so I feel nervous every single time I do it. And what inevitably happens in my home is I'll hang something on the wall and Raylin will come up and she'll say, so you think that's gonna, that's gonna work? <laughs> and I'll look at it and I'll go, well, I guess we'll see. <laughs> now, why does John 19 and Jesus on the cross make me think of these things? Why do our readings thus far make me think of these things? Why do the songs that we have sung make me think of these things? Because I wonder if when we think of the cross, we don't so much think my hope is built on nothing less as much as we think, well, we'll see how this goes. I hope this works out. I hope that nail holds. You know, I'm, I'm bringing a lot of sin to the table. You know, I have a weak faith and that weak faith has been evidenced a whole lot this week. You, you know, I, I am really messed up. And so I am hoping, I am, I am really hoping that the cross will accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish, but we're just gonna have to see. We will see. It's one thing to have a fear or an angst over a surgery or over a new tattoo. Those can bring very real angst and very real concern, but it is an entirely different thing to have angst or concern over the welfare of your soul. Can you imagine where being unsure about the state, the eternal state of your soul, how that might get inside of you and wreck everything about who you are, cause you to live a life that is very different than God might intend for you to live. Well, this is exactly the sort of concern, the sort of fear, the sort of angst that John wants to speak into. See, in John 20, verse 31, John gives us the purpose of his gospel. He says, the purpose of this gospel, the reason that I write these things is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. And so through John's account of Jesus going to the cross, he wants us to get in our heads and to get in our hearts that Christ is the solid rock whom we can build our life upon. Christ has accomplished the purpose that he set out upon to accomplish. In other words, atonement has been made. It is finished. And so if you're in Christ, salvation is yours. There is no question, it is done. And so for those of us who are in Christ, the only thing that we'll see about is how wonderful 
salvation truly is. What we'll see is something beyond our wildest dreams. And so for the rest of our time tonight, we're going to see one single point. And it is simple. It is finished. It is finished. And so we're going to work through John's account of the crucifixion. And as we do so, we're going to see various scenes. And in these scenes, we're going to see that same point over and over again. It is finished. It is finished. And we're going to see this stated over and over in different ways. And my hope is, is that as we see Jesus, that we would believe in him and that we would have life in him. So let's pray and we will dive into this text. Father, help us. Help us to see how great of a salvation is ours in Christ. And Lord, give us confidence as we see Jesus hung upon the tree. Give us confidence that his death is sufficient to cover our sins. And so Lord, help us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we go to your word. Minister to us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, scene one, the road. We're going to see, look at Jesus' crucifixion starting in verse 17 going through 18. Read along with me. So, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So we, we ended our reading with Jesus being handed over to be crucified, and what happens next? Jesus went out, bearing his own cross. A lot of artwork and movies, they lead us astray here. They get it wrong what this was actually like. Jesus wasn't laboring down the streets with his 10-foot fully formed cross. Rather, it was Roman practice to have condemned criminals carry their crossbar to the place where they will be crucified. And there, the soldiers would fix that crossbar to an upright stake or Uh, And then they would nail or they would tie the convicted criminal to that cross to crucify them. And so Jesus, we're told in John 19, sets out with his crossbar toward the place of the skull to Golgotha, an unclean place to be crucified. But here it's important to notice what isn't stated, what isn't said. See, if you're familiar with the other Gospels in the New Testament, then you know an an important piece of the journey to the cross has been left out. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that Jesus had help. Jesus was worn down. He had already been beaten, and he was being beaten along the way to Calvary. He was tired, and so Simon the Cyrene was enlisted to help Jesus carry his cross to the place where he would be crucified. And so the question becomes, in my mind, and I think it's an important question for us to get what John is driving at, is why wouldn't John include this piece of information? Is he misremembering? Is this revisionist history? Is he just not, is he skipping over non-necessary parts? 
You might remember last week, Randy shared uh, the idea that in the gospels, we have many different angles of the same event. And that's the idea here. When we see John omitting this detail of, uh, of, Cyrus, uh, of Simon the Cyrene not helping Jesus out, what we're seeing is a unique angle, a unique vantage point of the, tr- the road to Calvary. In other words, what we're seeing is, is that John is emphasizing a unique aspect of Jesus' passion. And so the question then becomes, what is that emphasis? Just as John conveyed Jesus' birth and incarnation in theological terms, I think now he's helping us to understand his death and crucifixion in theological terms. John is telling us that Jesus is in perfect control of this situation. Throughout the entire book of John, we see the hour looming in the distance. And never once do we see Jesus shrink back from that hour. No, he fixes his face squarely upon that hour and he moves forward. He moves toward that hour with resolve. And we see that same thing here. He's not being dragged to the cross. No, even if you just look at the amount of space devoted to the journey to Golgotha, it's almost as if Jesus is running to the cross. He has to get there as quickly as possible. John is not seeking to emphasize Jesus' humanity here or his suffering as appropriate as that might be. No, John here teaches us that nothing would stop Jesus. Jesus would not swerve from his mission to go to Calvary and hang upon that cursed tree. Scene two, the title, verses 19 through 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So Jesus, at this point, has been nailed to the cross. And he's positioned between two criminals. And where does John take us next? To this inscription attached to Jesus' cross. Pilate inscribed Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, to Jesus' cross. So this historical fact is recounted in three of the Gospels of the New Testament, but John uniquely spends a lot of time on this. He wants us to focus on this inscription. He wants us to camp out here and notice something particular. Why? Because through this inscription, God is using an unlikely source to function as his prophet and declare something true about Jesus. This was a fairly normal thing in Rome. Criminals would often have to carry around some sort of plaque that contained their notice of complaint uh, or what crime they committed. Sometimes it would be put on their cross as a warning like we see with Jesus. 
So travelers would pass by in these public places where these executions would take place and they would see these notices, they would see these charges for the crimes that were committed. And as this happened, as this happened, people would be warned, don't mess with Rome. Don't run afoul of the law like these people did. And so a warning was issued through these notices, through these charges being uh, written upon the cross. But also, this served to further humiliate those people who were hung up and tortured in front of all the passerbyers. It was a way to shame these people. Well, Jesus had his charges listed against him. Listed in three different languages, in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You know, Matthew calls these charges. And Mark says more generally, there was an inscription with this written upon it. And John, the ESV also calls these charges an inscription, but I think that's unfortunate. In the Greek, what John says here is unique. He says that these charges are no mere inscription, but these charges function as a title. A title. The way that Mickey Klink, formerly of Biola, puts it is that the term title has a more majestic or royal emphasis. And so the Jewish leaders, they don't like this. And so they ask Pilate to change it. And he emphatically says, what I have written, I've written. Pilate was a vindictive and proud person, no doubt. And so no doubt he had his own reasons for writing such a title as a way to get back at the Jews who sort of strong-armed him. But it seems that there's something more significant going on here. What we're seeing is God used Pilate to declare a glorious and eternal truth. Jesus is no mere criminal. No, he is the king of the Jews. And through Pilate, God declares to every person who travels through Jerusalem, every person from different tribes and tongues and nations who travel through and see Jesus, he, he writes something on there that shows them that Jesus is king. And the way that Mickey Klink puts it, so that even now from the cross, Jesus exacts his rule over all creation. Jesus is king. Scene three, the tunic. Verses 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots, for it is to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So what we're seeing here truly is a sad scene. But it's told to us in a way that's not particularly sad. Again, artwork hasn't really helped us or served us in this area. When you see a painting of Jesus on the cross, what does he tend to be wearing? He tends to be wearing some sort of sash or some sort of undergarment or some sort of loincloth, right? Well, we have been misled. 
In reality, when a person was crucified, they were stripped completely naked. And it heightened the shame to expose these people completely naked. And so this is true with Jesus as well. The sad reality, Jesus was stripped naked and hung upon the tree. But that is not the emphasis here. No, the emphasis is on what happened to his clothes. The guards don't know how to split them up amongst themselves. Something, again, that was common in these sort of settings. They want to be able to go home with some of his possessions. And so we're told it seems that Jesus would have had five pieces of clothing He would have had something like some shoes, a belt, a head covering, and a cloak. And then a tunic worn under that cloak. And so the guards split up those first four pieces of clothing. But they wanted to split up that last piece. That last piece, though, was woven from one piece of material. And so rather than than tearing it and ruining the piece of, or the, the, the tunic, they gambled for it. I, it's hard for me to fathom that while Jesus is hanging naked upon the cross, that we're spending time considering what is going on with his clothes here. So what's going on? Why include this? Is it just a, a historical fact for us to, to know so that we can share with our friends? No, the answer is in verse 24. This was to fulfill scripture. They divided my garments among them for my clothing, they cast lots. This is something that we've been seeing more and more of as Jesus approaches the cross. And we see it so many times just in the verses we've already read and we'll continue to read. But we're focusing here on this particular passage. Jesus and the circumstances of his life, death and resurrection are a fulfillment of scripture. Again, is the emphasis on Jesus' shame, on the God-man being made low. That's true, but that's not what is happening here. The emphasis is on Jesus as the unique Son of God, living and dying in perfect obedience to the will of the Father. God's perfect and sovereign plan is being unfolded before our very eyes. Scene four, the charge Verses 24 through 27. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, Jesus, upon the cross, sees his mother and John, his beloved disciple, standing nearby the cross. And at this point, Jesus surely would have been nearly spent due to his torture. His body was in a bad place. He would have been experiencing something near asphyxiation, He'd be covered in blood, struggling to breathe. He'd be losing control of his bodily functions. He would be swelling. The reality of torture upon a cross is insane. 
And he would be experiencing all of it, every bit of it. Again, is that what is highlighted here? No. What's highlighted for us? Jesus' love for his mother. On the cross, as he's dying, what does Jesus do? He sees his mom. He sees her. And in the moment of his greatest need, he sees his mom and he puts into plan or puts into place a plan to care for her. John, my friend, my beloved disciple, care for my mother. Take care of her. Take her into your home. Mom, entrust yourself into his care. And so that is what takes place. On the cross, as Jesus, the savior of the world, the one who was and is and will always be, the one who was with God and was God, the eternal word of God, Jesus loved his mom. Loved her. At the cross, Jesus doesn't merely suffer. No, he actively and intimately loves his sheep. On the cross, Jesus doesn't merely suffer. He loves you and me. And on the cross, he ensures that his sheep are cared for. He established a new family for his mom, even as he works to establish a new spiritual family for us. Finally, scene five, Jesus' death. Verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. After this, after caring for his mom, John says that all is finished. Jesus is given some sour wine. Again, in a way in which he fulfilled every jot or tittle of scripture so that all God's promises would find their yes and amen in Jesus. And then Jesus says, it is finished. What is finished? R.C. Sproul points out that the word here comes from the Greek verb telos. This is an important word. It means end or purpose. This is why we study teleology. What's the purpose of things? What's the end of things? When Jesus says that it is finished, he's saying that the end or the purpose for which he came is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. It's not that his life is finished, but his mission is finished. And so what is his mission? What is his purpose? To make atonement for sin. To seek and save the lost. To drink the cup of the wrath of God down to the very last drop so that you and me would not have to. To cast our sin as far as the east is from the west to bear our, city, our sins in his body upon the tree, to be the lamb for sinners slain, 
to be pierced for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities, to be numbered with the transgressors, so that to bring justification through one act of righteousness. In Jesus, it is finished, done, accomplished. And then what happens? Verse 30. Jesus bows his head and he gives up his spirit. I want you to catch something very important that happens in verse 30. Did the cross of Christ kill Jesus? Did Rome kill Jesus? Did the Jewish authorities kill Jesus? According to verse 30. Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. This week we've ordered our Passion Week celebration around John 12, 23 and 24. And verse 24 says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I'm taking this for granted here, but I hope you would want to see the fruit that this passage has in mind. There's a necessary condition, though, for this fruit to be experienced. The kernel of wheat has to die. Jesus, the unique son of God, came in just the right way at just the right time and he lived in accord with the Father's will, perfectly obeying the Father in all things, even to the point of death on a cross. And what's the result? Fruit. Glorious fruit. Our debt was paid. Atonement is made. It is finished. Jesus Christ is the solid rock which we can build our hopes and our dreams upon. We can stake our lives upon. He is our hope and our stay, our cornerstone, our life and light and salvation. Again, John wrote his gospel and his account of Jesus' death so that we would believe so we would have perfect confidence in Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, which we'll explore more on Sunday. And so as you consider this Jesus, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, I urge you, believe in him. Believe in him. Hope in him, rest in him, trust in him. And as you believe in him, have and experience life in his name. It's yours in Christ. If you've never believed in Jesus, if you hear these things and this is so foreign to you, but you want to know what that looks like, then please do not leave this place tonight not having wrestled with your sin and our all-sufficient Savior, Jesus. Please come find me. I'll be right here after the service. I would love to talk to you about what it means to believe in Jesus. Our elders will be here. Find someone to take you to an elder. We want to talk to you about Jesus tonight and what it looks like to trust and hope in him. You may come to the cross. You may come to this service this evening angsty. 
You may come concerned or fear-ridden, hoping beyond hope that what Jesus did upon the cross applies to you. Well, John 19 says, it is finished, done. In Christ, we have hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the opportunity to come and sit at your cross and consider that Jesus bore our cross, bore our burdens. And so Father, I pray that as we look to our all-sufficient Savior, Jesus, you would fill us with wonder, fill us with hope, and fill us with life. Lord, I pray that the purpose of the book of John would find its fulfillment in our minds and hearts tonight. And we would go from here being so overjoyed with gladness for the salvation that is ours in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be wonderfully and gloriously calling some to salvation even tonight. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, that they would be confronted with your glorious grace. And so, Lord, I pray that you would save them tonight and allow us to know that. Lord, we thank you for being a good and great God. We thank you for your wonderful son, our all-sufficient Savior. We hope and trust in him now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.